The subject for the evening talk is the composite of a human being. Sometimes it does become apparent to us the frequency at which we are rather driven, compelled along from one thing to the other. And it seems that it's a kind of combination of the impact of outer circumstances uh, upon us and equally uh, leaning towards that arises from within. And so the tendency and the leaning towards uh, and the impact of what's around meets together in almost a magnetic potency. And thus we find ourselves constantly being, so we might say, pulled out of ourselves, pulled from uh, one thing to another. And when that changes, when that uh, uh, begins to stop, the mind itself, the inner life itself, may not know whether it's on foot or horseback, because it's got so used and so familiar to this living in an externalized way. And this movement from the inner to the outer, the outer to the inner, tends to go on, of course, in life from uh, one moment to the next. What goes along with all of that is a whole range of uh, views and opinions which we have which around what causes what. So there's the impact of the world through our senses, what you and I see, hear, smell, taste, touch. There's the inner movement that goes on, that makes contact with all of that. And then, alongside of it, goes all the views and opinions that accompany it. And sometimes those views and opinions go according to tendency, often in one or two directions meaning we will look and say, this is the cause, and here's the effect. So, sometimes we say, oh, I am the cause, and because I am the cause, this is the effect. Or sometimes the view will reverse itself, of course, and be completely round the other way, and we say, that is the cause, and I am the effect, whatever I, is happening to me. And this view, cause and effect, goes backwards and forwards in life, sometimes bringing a lot of uh, pleasure, and obviously, and equally in life, uh, bringing a lot of uh, uh, distress, unhappiness, pain, etc. And the tendency of the mind, in the inner and outer, saying that's the cause, I'm the effect, I'm the cause, this is the effect. The tendency of the mind is to have that view with such frequency that it becomes a self-evident view. And that's what it is. It's evident to the self, not the truth, not the reality. It's evident to I and me and my of the view, backwards and forwards, of what seems self-evident. And 
we often take um, various forms of examples of, of that and, and that helps to reinforce it if someone comes uh, along and uh, gives us uh, a tremendously wonderful present we are very very grateful and then we will say oh well this person's the cause of my happiness and if someone comes uh, along and steals our most precious uh, heirloom if one has those sort of things then one will say oh this person is the cause of my unhappiness and the view cause and effect, inner and outer seems so obvious why would one want to question it? why would one want to think maybe it, that view is a contribution to a lack of wisdom so when something appears very self-evident we had some of this in the uh, inquiry this afternoon where anything in life which seems to be so obvious there's the place to put the doubt and I'm quite sure years ago I mean centuries ago people held the view that the world was flat it was self-evident I mean flat with a little few bumps in it called Devon Hills or something like that <coughs> how can anybody question how could the world be round if it was round those at the edge would be sliding off and there was a, con- a strong conviction about it as the centre of the universe they, they, the, the, uh, the church um, put people to the stake for claiming that the church the church <laughs> claiming that the church wasn't the centre of the universe <laughs> but also claiming that the earth wasn't the centre of it either we, we look up and we say well, what a wonderful night stars are shining God, look at the stars they're just shining well stars don't shine just a lump of whatever you want to call it up, hanging up or hanging out up there or whatever but the view seems so agreeable so much a common consensual view that it tends to go unquestioned so rather similarly in looking at the composite of our of ourselves it's not that we're trying to have a fixed view which we can say this is it but just enough watchfulness and awareness and clarity and hopefully just enough wisdom in life to see what the viewing exclusively in cause and effect does to consciousness does to the composite of one's being if we don't look we will tend to believe in the various conclusions time and time again of this cause, this effect, this cause, this effect and think that is the reality it's not the reality the reality, what it is is an interpretation of events and there is a world of difference between the true nature of things or reality in the deepest sense and what we keep interpreting 
people come on a retreat. And within the space of one, two, or uh, three days, has selected somebody to be the villain of the retreat. Poor person, innocent, coming here just to cross his or her legs and walk up and down slowly. <laughs> no anticipation whatsoever that this person is the receptacle for waves of negativity. It might be because they dropped a spoon at the table or they, <laughs> or they didn't spend ten minutes drying their cup or whatever the kind of view that people have that which they wish to lynch somebody for. So the person is quietly, calmly getting on with their day. But someone's got them as the, the, the villain. And in the perception which arises, alongside with it can go equally the view this person is ruining my retreat I'd probably be enlightened by now (laughs) if this person hadn't been born (laughs) so the view irritation, negativity, agitation or whatever arises we pick out some poor devil and we view in cause and effect and it affects every perception every time we see the person every time we hear their voice every, t- every time they say something in a small group or, or have a cup of tea or whatever it might be so there is this apparently sublime silence which is going on and a kind of in, in that silence there can be a whole web of views and opinions swooping and swooning and swooning around in this sort of this silence. And if we look at it honestly, the way that it occurs, how easy and much of it can be cause and effect. And as I say, outer to inner, cause is outer, I am the effect inner to outer. And this movement we want to notice and be aware of well and clearly, not with a view to trying to, with thinking, undermine it and dismiss it or whatever. But as it were, see if we can understand in a different kind of way, which doesn't become the breeding ground for divisiveness. And when the mind is in cause and effect and clinging to it as a view, division is close at hand. Things are not that simple. Sometimes, of course, as I mentioned earlier, <coughs> and on retreats as well, it could be in the, in the field of the, of the pleasant as well. And quite often we can express appreciation for, as I mentioned in the opening evening, I think, or opening day, um, with regard to food as a common uh, situation. And people come, and some say they only come on uh, retreats with myself um, for the food and the humour, and uh, the rest is hanging around. Well, 
<laughs> I have to come for the food personally, but anyway. So there can be the situation of, oh, uh, the, the food, one appreciates it, and there's a response and uh, a connection which goes uh, along with it. But if in that there is any kind of identification with holding on to or, or whatever, whatever it might be, then the habit is formed around the appreciation. The holding is formed around it. And it can well be that when the next person comes, maybe a change of cooks. And the next day's food may be quite different. And if I'm holding to yesterday, then today generates all manner of views, perceptions or whatever. So towards the same object in this composite of our being, towards the same object, whether it's food or a person or whatever the item might be, responses, pleasant and unpleasant, can and do arise. But is there with it uh, uh, an impact upon it which we hold to it? To whatever, if we hold to it. If you and I have an image or a picture of somebody who we know, who is important, who we relate to, who matters to us. And if we're holding to that picture from the past, pleasant or unpleasant, we are not going to be very wise nor skillful in, able, in being able to see through the present, into the present. Because we carry firmly old into the present. And we can't see the totality, the composite of another human being because we're living with what was. And it's in these kind of situations especially, it's Dharma teachings of practice, of being here and now, of not living in the past, you know, matter a great deal because it's the one resource that we have to actually be connected and understand other people as much as ourselves. Because we can see them, not see the old. When we turn our attention to ourselves in terms of meditation, the composite of ourself. Knowing ourselves, in a way, is a knowing of the totality of our being, but also, and equally important, it's also knowing the aspects and features. So, the, uh, in the Dharma language, the word um, uh, unique, which was mentioned in the inquiry this afternoon, is not viewed, to put it mildly, with a great deal of support nor interest. Insofar as when we characterize somebody as, or oneself as being uh, unique, it can be a kind of breeding ground for the conceit and ego. It can begin to create and generate um, a hierarchy. You say, oh, this person is unique. And 
and with it, with the repetition of it, there can be the potential in that for boosting one person or one situation or one group up, building it up. And that, what we build up, tends to be easily at the expense of others. We call it unique. This person is unique. This situation is unique. And so one has to be extremely vigilant in looking at the general composite of a human being or the composite of a place or or a situation in putting and fixing this particular label. Because sometimes we have thought somebody is unique, then we get to know the person and we think, oh, they're not quite as unique as I thought they were when I first met them. And we get them to know them a little bit better and we don't even want to use the word unique too much. And then eventually, well, they seem terribly human. And it goes a bit further. My God, they're just like me. <laughs> and oh, I don't know if we go any worse than that. Anyway, <laughs> etc. So one can start off with the characteristic of this perception called being unique. Time, knowledge, information, contact with, association with, might reduce that perception dramatically. I'm sure if we spent a few weeks in the company of um, um, Nelson Mandela, morning, noon and night, who who we referred to earlier on, or Mahatma Gandhi, or uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, or others, the feature, perception, might change. Why? We know more fully. We know more directly. We know more totally. And that that brings... If there isn't ego investment there, it brings an atmosphere in the relationship of the composite of a human being into a state of honesty. Into a state of honesty. Over the uh, years, let us speak uh, um, uh, with regard to the past, over the years, um, I've having the privilege of being a small servant of the Dharma, of course, have met many people who are uh, devoted of a particular guru, Buddhist tradition, Hindu tradition, uh, uh, mystical New Age, etc. And in that form there has been much appreciation. But when the elevation starts, whoever we do it with, the tendency can often be that when we do it for a period of time, whoever the figure is, it does stay high in the consciousness. Think of somebody you meet who you're impressed with. Just tend to stay high in the consciousness. And one can't, one isn't kind of looking for faults and looking for blame and trying to be cynical and negative. One doesn't feel like that. One feels that appreciation. And sometimes it's necessary in the studying of honesty with existence that as we move through our interactions with existence over the period of time, maybe one begins to see things which are not quite fitting 
with what one has seen previously. And for some, that can be incredibly hurtful and painful and disappointing, and it then can produce a withdrawal, maybe appropriate, an escape, or whatever. But some others learn just to stay steady with elevation and whatever the opposite word is for elevation. Putting down, we might say. Building up and putting down. And finding that wisdom and clarity in life means that one thing is required for that clarity to embrace all that we see in in the composite of other human beings. It requires steadiness of mind and heart. Unless the heart learns and understands what it is to be steady in the face of existence, it will be subjected to those tendencies I refer to and the building up of the composite of a human being. And with the building up, easily can come to collapse. Just as we do that with others, and what about the composite of ourselves? Some people will say, oh, it's easier to see in relationship to others, but equally we can do it without, with ourselves. And with ourselves, we can take a particular feature um, of ourselves and build it up, isolate it, and the effect of which is neglect everywhere else. So looking at the composite, what is the composite of ourselves? One aspect is bodily life. Another aspect of it is emotional life. Another aspect of it is what we perceive, our perceptions of things. Another feature of it is the thoughts that we have, and the other is the quality of the consciousness. All this called five aggregates in the kind of technical language of uh, Dharma practice. So looking at ourselves, we say, oh, here's the body, here's the emotional life, here's the perception, seeing, hearing, smelling, so forth. Here are the thoughts arising, and here's the consciousness, consciousness being conscious of, aware of, mindful of. In the composite of oneself, is one spending far too much time in one area and concerned with one area at the expense of another? If so, it lends and it leads itself to its own imbalance. So sometimes, I mean, a small, a small um, example. I was in the um, local vegetable, vegetable, fruit and veg shop the other day, and there's a young guy who works uh, 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 in there, and being the lovely uh, spring day that it was, he was just wearing a, um, a t-shirt, and I commented to him, "My God, you've been doing some bodybuilding. You know, it's one of those." Uh, t-shirts about six sizes too small <laughs> and every muscle on his body was just bulging out <laughs> and, um, and I said how did you end up in that condition and uh, <laughs> I didn't quite put it in that 
language, but you know what I mean. And he said that he spends hours and hours every week for the past seven years doing weight training and doing the heavy weight in order to build up his body. And so sometimes I use it as an example or sometimes people have a uh, connection with, putting it politely, with uh, uh, bodily life and there's a great deal of attention which is given to it. Some attention certainly has to be. And then you get the get others and the Buddhist tradition is, is notorious for this, in incredible neglect of the body. Dreadful, appalling in uh, monastic life, appalling lack of exercise, um, heavy, overweight, unfit, unwell-looking uh, uh, teachers, and uh, a world in which there has been neglect. Neglect of the body. And the kind of using the language of detachment, using language of letting go, using the language of avoid, of um, um, uh, um, it's just coming and going, etc. And actually, it's a very, un, I would say, unwise and unhealthy relationship to bodily life, born using Dharma language, um, which is really just neglect. By any terms, it's neglect. And all the consequences that can flow out of that. So, as I say, in our relationship to the composite of ourselves, it's genuinely giving some care and attention to our relationship to physical life. And there's a signal of respect and sensitivity towards the organism. How is the relationship to uh, emotional life and our feelings and what uh, touches us, um, where things are difficult, where there's anger and negativity and we get upset because things are not going right or somebody throws judgments and views and opinions which we can't handle at us or whatever it might be. How is the willingness to learning to find a steadiness in the uh, toing and and throwing of um, the views and opinions uh, which get thrown uh, at us. And it takes a certain steadiness and presence to, to be able to do that. To actually say, okay, that area I need to work with. I need to, to look at my feelings and my emotions and, and how they're flowing in life and how they're um, um, manifesting and where the fears and the anger uh, is, which are two, among others, of difficult ones to work with. And then others, it might be just with regard to one's um, perceptions of things. As I said earlier on, in terms of what we see in here, around here, and the kind of response or reaction that goes on within can tell us far more about the condition of our inner life than it does tell us about what we see and what we hear. And as Ajahn Shah, one of the old, uh, uh, dead now, some uh, 
uh, years ago made a, a one-liner which will probably pass on from one generation of teachers to the next because it's uh, uh, a good one. He, he said, sometimes we are meditating and we say, oh, this noise, it's really disturbing me, whatever it might, might be. Somebody has, doing a bit of heavy breathing in the meditation hall or a, or a squabble of the birds up in the trees or whatever it might be. And Ajahn Chah said, oh, no, no, it's not like that. The sound isn't disturbing there. Um, it's uh, your mind disturbing the sound. <laughs> and sometimes we need to be quite clear about, you know, what's what, so to, so to speak, in, uh, in all of this. So, there's perceptions. For another person, it can be thought. And where there's particular areas of focus and interest in one's life, of course, it can invite a tremendous amount of conceptualization. If one is um, uh, studying, for example, given the tremendous impact that it has on the psyche, if one is spending time daily in front of a computer, if one is doing a lot of uh, reading and writing and so forth, all of that's the world of language. And one can begin to live in this field of language uh, a great deal. And all the views and opinions which is the common denominator of language. Now if one goes into and enters into that field a great deal, what happens when one is out of it? What happens when one isn't do- doing that? Is other aspects and features of one's life genuinely getting nourishment? Is the heart being nourished? Is there attention being given to health and the body and uh, exercise and, and diet? If one is spending a great deal of time in the perceptions and they're very much indoors, very much focused on a person or persons because of being a family member or in the work environment, what is the alternative to that? Is there the perceptions of flowers and trees and earth and sky and nature and birds and animals? And just as here we have badgers and if you walk down the road you'll see, you'll see deer and, and woodpeckers here and of course uh, squirrels and many other, other creatures. And when we're rather silent and rather invisible, so to speak, and then our receptivity and our perceptions can see and pick up these. One person went for a walk and it's in the space of half an hour. This is this afternoon, saw two foxes playing around. In all of that in our own quietude and presence of, of being, we forget how much all of that matters. How that's the real stuff and beauty and wonder of life. But if we and I, if you and I are so much concentrated on physical bodily survival, if we're just concentrated so much on, um, on our thinking world or, uh, or um, having all that... Uh, wanting our emotions always to be all right without really looking at them uh, with uh, care and sensitivity, etc., etc., then there will be an imbalance in that sense of the composite and the totality of ourself. 
and awareness and mindfulness and is a kind of centering agent in a way towards and making a contribution in life to be grounded and say to oneself openly and honestly in the composite of myself is there any area which is being neglected? That's the bottom line. Is there any area which is not being attended to? And it can be that sometimes, as I say, the exaggeration of one area in life can be at the expense of the other. And when, there is, when it is at the expense of the other, then it creates upheavals in our life. It has to. It has to. In looking at the composite of ourselves, in speaking in a slightly different way with regard to it, it's rather, in a way, saying to ourselves, where does this feeling and sense of I have its location? Where are the locations for I? And in that, as an example, when Russell today was giving the um, morning meditation instructions and speaking about breath, speaking about body, speaking about uh, listening there, when giving care and attention to the body, sometimes there is pain arising in the body. And the normal thing would be to say, well, the pain which is arising physically is because of the posture. You say, it's obvious. Because if I just move a few centimetres, that knee which is hurting, that leg which is hurting, or whatever, if I just, which it is, if, if I just move a few centimetres either way, or whatever, then it will disappear, as it just did. Therefore, one says, ah, oh, the posture is the cause of the pain, yeah, Everyday language, yes, we can speak in, in that way. But sometimes it's not quite as obvious and evident as that. That in other words, when we have a certain depth of calmness and well-being, what it also does is expand our ability of tolerance. One of the greatest virtues, and so much respected and loved for in the Buddhist uh, tradition, one of the things which strongly attracted m- myself, in fact, to the tradition and practice is the long-standing um, communication and expression and demonstration in the healthiest aspect of the tradition of tolerance. To be tolerant with life. And when there is a depth of calmness and relaxation with ourselves, uh, our friends, then something happens is going on in the psyche, again a little mysterious, going on in the psyche, which allows and enables us to accommodate more. Sign of wisdom in life and the art of skillfulness and in life is that the pain horizons expand out quite noticeably. And what one was could have been extremely intolerant towards, and let's say physical pain might be, or um, certain circumstances in our life one actually feels and senses a greater sense of tolerance about. 
it's not apathy or indifference one's not losing one's convictions in life, any of that but the pain horizon is expanding out significantly and we can often forget that in the meditation, sitting meditation, walking meditation, standing meditation one is performing a tremendous act of kindness for the earth and its people by the willingness to expand one's pain horizon when we just stay rather shrunken and stay fixed uh, with that it not only puts rather difficult and painful pressure on ourselves but also on others it has to so our sitting meditations, our walking standing meditations do sometimes mean a lot of working with pain one could easily make the time here much easier we could say, oh forget forget it, six o'clock in the morning no, 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 no we'll, we'll have breakfast at um, um, 8.30 long, relaxed bacon and eggs <laughs> and then we'll have a 15 minute meditation we'll bring some chairs armchairs obviously and then we'll discuss it for an hour <laughs> and we won't stretch ourselves too much and one forgets in a two and a half thousand year old tradition of this practice pretty well unbroken pretty well unbroken practice that there is a wisdom in it a wisdom of silence a wisdom of giving teachings therefore the use of language but not overdoing it and a wisdom which says that if we're willing to stay steady for those who experience pain in the body uh, in the sitting and to work with it, it will open out not only the cellular life and expand it in a very uh, healthy way but also, and equally, it will open out the consciousness to accommodate more to learn to accommodate more so much so that this can, of this accommodation which is a fundamental um, principle of the uh, teachings and the practice that the accommodation can be such that we can accommodate without any effort our entire existence the entire existence of others this entire universe and all that goes on called birth and death that capacity we have and one of the because of the interconnectedness of things and the inseparability of things that in a direct way if we really have comprehended and understood what it is to accommodate our existence therefore no big lines between life and death because we've accommodated it both we've actually accommodated everything we've actually accommodated everything because everything that we know passes through the composite how can it not? everything that a human being knows in being in this world has to come from 
and through the instrument called the senses, or the instrument called the mind, or the instrument called uh, tendencies towards, or from cellular life, or whatever. Somewhere it has to come through all of this. Can't know anything without this. And we have the capacity to accommodate it all effortlessly. Why? Because the true nature of things accommodates everything effortlessly. Everything. Effortlessly. Therefore, being in touch with the true nature of things is liberation itself. Is enlightenment itself. And the clear statement of it is one has accommodated everything. May all beings live with insight. May all beings live with realization. May all beings live a liberated life. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.